Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. This great civilization is what the secret societies venerate Atlantis want to rebuild in that sort of imagery. A Rosicrucian named Francis Bacon who writes the New Atlantis, which has this end time scenario and this universal religion that works with harmony with the seven sciences, which of course is that religion of Enoch, Enochian mysticism, as I like to call it, that that crossed the flood that they want to set up for the end time. So they see uh, a millennial rule as being their millennium, just as Hitler tried to offer a thousand year reign and that you have Francis Bacon saying we want a world that is going to be run this way in a similar kind of manner and of course Rosicrucians don't believe in God they believe in the pantheon of gods and they want to bring them back so the new age is just the modern reflection of new Atlantis and of course they're offering this new age in this millennial rule where you'll be like gods And again, everything leading up to that will be a promise to make you like God, just as what was offered to Eden to bring humankind down. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today we're privileged to have back Gary Wayne, author of the book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And what a great follow-up. Gary and I talk kind of where we left off. We talk about how did this entire Freemasonic, antediluvian, illicit knowledge come about that leads to the secret societies and the preservation of bloodlines in order for those Luciferian elite to follow their plans against God and to the undermining of his image bearers, humanity. And so uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this, all of the, the wealth of information that Gary provides. And unfortunately, Luke was not able to join us for this recording as he had some obligations to take care of as a firefighter, but he will be back soon. So with that, let's bring on Gary Wayne. 
Well, welcome back, Gary Wayne. We appreciate your time and, and coming back here. And I've got a, a slew of questions to kind of pick up where we left off on, on bloodlines and secret society and things like that. And in preparation for that, uh, I've been as much as I could get through um, going through your book again. And also um, I picked up uh, Fritz Springmeier's uh, Bloodlines books. So, um, and then I think it was through that process, I also came across um, David Carrico's uh, Egyptian Masonic connection, if you're, if you're familiar yep, with David that Carico. one. Yep. Carrico, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but I, I know David quite well, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of connects. Yeah, so the, you're well prepared. Yeah, I, as as best I can be, yeah. as best I can be, and we'll see how much we can get through. Um, but I thought maybe the first uh, half or so we would focus on mystery schools, secret societies, bloodlines, origin, and kind of the the progression of Freemasonry. And then maybe the latter portion, if we can, we'll see how far that takes us um connecting that to hitler and the occult openings that he made into the spiritual world because there seems to have been a a huge spike in ufo and abduction and grays and all of this following kind of that time period of hitler and alistair crowley and all of these things that they might have opened up to the spiritual world um, and then maybe tying that into, cause I remember you mentioned about, um, the greys being similar to stories of fairy folk and goblins and gnomes, and they're share, sharing a lot of similarities there. And then of course we're hearing about all these, um, things in the news, you know, they have the attack in Peru. If you heard about that with these supposed seven foot tall greys and, and, uh, questions on on how that origin has come about, and were these things around, but maybe in different forms back then, and now they're grays. But we'll save that maybe for the for the latter part. So, sure. um, yep. yeah. So maybe to start off, um, I know you mentioned quite a bit in your book about the seven sciences and those originally being handed down from God as a blessing of knowledge, as I understand it, to humanity, but then they were perverted or corrupted and maybe used in an idolatrous way. So can you kind of unpack, like, what are those and how they were good and then how they became bad or used improperly? Yeah. Yeah, so... First thing I would say about understanding knowledge or wisdom or technology or anything that is sort of done in this physical realm is, is that nothing is good or evil. It's how it's used. And that's all, as we go through these types of discussions, it's very, very important. So because Christians get accused of being anti-knowledge, and then they want to put their heads in the sand and that they don't. And that's not true. It's the application of the knowledge and the wisdom it takes to, to, to be able to dispense that knowledge in a righteous sort of way that's in question. So having said that, 
Uh, you know, we start with the Garden of Eden. Uh, and in this garden, you have the knowledge understanding overlaid into it in two sort of doses, if I could put it that way. First is that Adam is created and put into in singular and put and put into the garden. And this garden is much larger than a backyard variety garden. It goes from the Nile River to the Euphrates and, you know, to up to the Caspian Sea and then down to the sea in the south. So it's a very, very large area. And as you take the Eden account back to Hebrew, it and Hebrew is not well translated into English, nor is the Greek in cases. And the words hold a lot more meaning and were understood in those cultures with those connotations to those meanings. And so when we see that Adam is being provided knowledge, he's being provided knowledge to run this large agrarian project versus the hunter and gather world outside. And he is farming. So he's raising crops as you take that back to Hebrew. He is raising orchards. There are forests to manage. There are uh, animals that he's naming. There are domesticated animals. So he has to know everything about raising cattle, raising sheep, raising goats, whatever he was creating within that. And so he would have to have knowledge also of astronomy. And he would have to have knowledge on how to make his work easier to manage this because there was just one of him. Yeah. And uh, eventually he gets some empathy out of God. And I say that <laughs> tongue in cheek because he gets a helper created. Yes. <laughs> but now you have two people operating um, from the Nile to uh, the river. So it's no matter how you get around it at that time they're going to need knowledge and this knowledge is coming from God because that's who they're communicating with. But there's also an interaction that is going on. That's implied that you have this unexplained serpent uh, who's walking, talking, intelligent and seemingly different than Satan because Satan's not the one who loses his legs or loses his intelligence and loses his arms and loses his speech. It's this Nahash that I think Satan is utilizing, but the implication there is, is that there's more to the knowledge of what they're being taught and to be like God to, and to be like God, uh, you would have to have the understanding of good and evil. And that's the tree of Gnosis in polytheism. And it has this whole additional level of knowledge that sort of goes with it. And so this is the knowledge that the Gnostics and the Masonic societies take the beginning of their secret societies too. So this knowledge is first taught to Adam. And then it is taught to, uh, after being ostracized from Eden, and after they have children, the knowledge is taught to both Abel and to Cain. And then once Abel is murdered and Cain is ostracized and Seth is born when Adam's 130 years old, then Seth is going to be taught that knowledge. So this is the knowledge that the polytheists tend to look at that Adam was being taught that comes from knowledge, and that could be a significant bank of knowledge. And biblically, we can sort of say there's knowledge taught there. So we, we get that understanding, what that level is, we're not really told. But in the polytheist version, in the Masonic Polychronicon, 
which is their oral tradition that was later, you know, uh, made into a written form in which they also include many aspects of the Bible uh, as part of that ancient history. They take, which is why there's so many overlaps. Uh, that knowledge is passed on to Cain, and when he leaves, he does not use that knowledge for good. And he's going to take up the worship and the following of the fallen angels because he feels he has been accursed by God. And so that's his sort of answer to what he's going to do. And so he is going to develop this knowledge, and then he's going to move to Nod. He's going to find a wife, which is another unexplained part of that story and they're going to have a son named Enoch and it's important to remember there are two Enochs in the Genesis account one is the firstborn son of Cain and one is the son of Jared Uh, and one's good one's not good obviously we're talking about the evil Enoch being born of Cain and it's Enoch who separates this knowledge that he has passed on from Cain into what they call the seven sacred sciences And then from that, you had the knowledge that was used, needed to be developed and used, but needed to be protected. So they developed the initiatory religious system through sun worship and the bull cult that was before the flood. And with the development of that knowledge, they developed the mystery schools from which the secret societies take their beginning, um, and masonry being the fifth science or geometry of the seven sciences, and that um, this is the knowledge that will later intermix with the knowledge, the illicit knowledge of the gods or the illicit knowledge of the fallen angels, as the book of Enoch talks about, that's going to take the knowledge of the antediluvian epoch to uh, a level that we're per- perhaps just catching up to today because because some of the things that they did we're just now seeing on the horizon and it seems like our knowledge is being sort of sped up so when i say that i'm thinking like the gnostics and the polytheists and the secret societies say the knowledge to build the pyramids came from enoch the evil or the one of which is one of their most significant patriarchs, and I, I nickname him the evil just to make clear who I'm talking about, and that uh, Cain is a patriarch, also is uh, Lamech, and there's two Lamechs in those genealogies, as is Tubal-Cain, as is Nama, as in Jabal and Jabal. So for all four of those represent developing a knowledge in the in the generation of Lamech, and after, of course, they're born. That is also the time of the creation of the giants. So all of this is going on at the same time. And this knowledge and this religion is going to marry in with the creation of the giants to create this hierarchical order before the flood. And the disciplines of those sciences will be developed in certain initiatory segments of the mystery schools that's only being taught to the elite and you have to be an adept to learn these and a a noble elite to learn this knowledge. So that's where they take their beginnings back to. And then they have a second beginning. They have a second beginning after the flood and how they get there. And I'll, I'll keep this short because I've probably opened up about a 15 doors that somebody could walk through with questions. So (laughs) 
after the flood in their account, um, you have in two different accountings, one is the legend of Enoch, one is the legend of Lamech. And on this, and it's basically the same legend, so it's been maybe corrupted a little bit or confused, or maybe they both worked on it, we don't know. But they wanted to ensure that this knowledge that was being developed wasn't lost. And this knowledge, just so that people have an idea, not only could it build the pyramids, but it could change the DNA of animals and humans and the plant genome. So the Bible sort of tells us this, if we take it back to Hebrew, where it says at the time of the flood in Genesis 6 and 7, at the time of the creation of the giants, all wrapped in together in the giants is part of the preamble and the reason for the flood because of the application of this knowledge and the violence that comes out of that knowledge that, that they receive is that the whole world was corrupt. And that's the Hebrew word chakoth. The whole, maybe more specific on that, the whole earth was corrupted. And that means to decay, to per pervert, to spoil, to degrade, to ruin. So they're doing things in a way that is corrupting the whole earth and, and creating violence and wars on the earth. And that so much so that God calls the specific animals of the kind that are uncorrupted, I think, uh, my speculation, so that they could restart after the world, just as they're going to pick uncorrupted DNA and uncorrupted spiritual aspect of Noah and the eight on the ark again to do the restart to give enough time so all the names in the book of life can have a chance to have an opportunity to keep their name in the book of life or have it blotted out. So that's all sort of part of God knows what everything is going to happen. And he's just making sure that there's enough time here. So this knowledge is put onto two pillars as to where it's located. One is made so it can survive water and one by fire. Cause I don't know, according to their accounts, whether it's going to be apocalypse of fire or apocalypse of water. They just know there's an apocalypse coming. And so there are 36,525 books of Enoch and are stored in nine vaults stacked on top of each other under the great pyramid. And the pillars will give directions to that knowledge and whatever else they need to go with it to access that knowledge. And so a fellow by the name of Harmines that we would know as Hermes and more infamously as Hermes Trismegistus finds this pillar. So obviously the one that floats and he goes, he gets the knowledge. He takes it to Nimrod at Babel and they start applying that knowledge by building the city, building the, the tower and who knows what, all that technology is designed to do because of its it's this antediluvian knowledge and nimrod becomes the first archetypical antichrist figure after the flood with the enochian religion that he imposes and he's trying to go into heaven like antichrist will in the end time in daniel 8 10 and what lucifer or satan did in the angelic rebellion so it's all sort of infant tied so somehow this knowledge is 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 tied to building this tower that's going to permit him to do that and he writes nimrod writes the first constitution for the masons after the flood okay and becomes again one of their great patriarchs and their first grand master after the flood so that's how the secret societies first get going that's how they resurface after the flood Okay. All right. So yeah, a few things to unpack there, of course, but that was an excellent, yeah, just <laughs> like you said, opens up a lot of doors, which is great.
So, and, and so these were basically seven sciences that, like you said, were not good or bad in and of themselves, but these were basic understandings of, of physics and math and like, what are they basically the same as, you know, what we're taught in liberal arts in college? Same seven liberal arts in college and arts was known as a science in ancientology. So they're just using the same terminology. And what's also sort of interesting about um, what they did with these seven sciences once they put them into those disciplines it was designed to do the same things that it's doing today the first thing was to lead people away from god which cain had left god and his whole progeny is going to be rebellious towards god and they're going to honor their pantheon of gods within that knowledge and the application of that knowledge, which you still see today. And you certainly see that on campuses and where you have at least the older ones that are built in Greek or Roman or Egyptian architecture or Babylonian. Everything's named after their gods and that belief system in, in the universities. It's a degree system. You have these rituals, including graduation with black robes. It's So anyways, I won't go too far down that stream. And then the other two things it was designed to do was to degrade God, as in dismiss him, not give him credit for anything, which modern science does today. And it was designed, yeah, so, so, so to degrade God and then not to give God credit for anything. So he's not allowed to be used in the religious sciences. Uh, and again, another reflection of what we see today. So that's what they were doing with the knowledge. So they took it and then they used it to uh, lead people away from God in the antediluvian time after the flood again and to honor their pantheon gods in all the ways that they that they applied it. And then when it was provided the illicit knowledge, it went on steroids. Ah, Okay, but uh, before we get to that, um, so basically they they took these neutral sciences and they cut God out as the giver of of knowledge for the benefit of mankind and said, no, it came from this pantheon of lesser, you know, small g gods, right? The uh, and you've talked about the parent God and the and the uh, offspring God, right? And then basically used it as a, a form of idolatry and then created these rites of passage that one must go through that they progressively get more and more knowledge in the occult system. Is that yeah. a, a fair overview? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's essentially it. So th their interesting play on it is this, is that the knowledge that God had provided Adam was large but only large enough to keep him enslaved to worshiping God. Hmm. So the illicit knowledge that is provided is designed to free humans from that those restraints of the knowledge and to let them develop it, if permitted, to be like God. Okay. And, and the illicit side of it, uh, is that a corruption or a perversion of the original, or is this an additional knowledge that God never intended us to be able to know? Both. Both. Okay. Both. Yes. So, okay. So for example, yeah, I would, yeah. So, I mean, you can have the knowledge to make metallurgy. Right. But then you pervert it by making weaponry. Aha. Uh -huh. 
like you can do disciplined uh, arts, but then you can do disciplined martial arts. And then that becomes uh, a perversion of it. You can understand how the stars and the constellations are formed. That's astronomy, but astrology becomes a perversion of that. And those are just sort of some examples. And so the understanding of using um, chemistry and alchemy for good is perverted into doing all sorts of things that can be used which are not good. And on and on and on. It's, it's that distinguishing of the good and the evil aspect. And some of the knowledge that it would take to develop that, that, they, that humans or the giants wouldn't necessarily have been able to do on their own. Right. Um, so you made the distinction of the illicit knowledge. Can you kind of give how that offshoot began and then expanded? Well, in polytheism and in the book of Enoch, which is kind of a similar sort of accounting, this additional knowledge come from the, comes from the gods. And it's called the illicit knowledge not permitted to be part of humankind. And as they're working this knowledge, it works into those seven initial sciences. And so out of the first three sciences comes the, the basis to form philosophy. And philosophy is a Greek word which means the love of wisdom, but also the love of Sophia. Sophia is the, is the mother goddess in Gnosticism that creates the 12 archons that include the God of the Bible in their belief system and his equal Lucifer, or the great architect of the universe, as they like to call him. And so this is the theology of the sciences, so it's not a secular, it is completely a polytheist one that's dominated by, by the fallen angels. And this sci these sciences have the ability to go interdimensional, into the divine essence, to find the hidden knowledge of the universe that they call the, is uh, transferred through what they call the Atma particle or the Atman particle, and that comes out of the Vedas. And through quantum entanglement, it disperses all knowledge instantaneously, continuously, perpetually, um, all the, and, and in multiple dimensions, all always ongoing. And that's what they want to uh, tap into with this angelic technology, which seemingly they would have had that level before the flood. And that's the divine essence as we understand it today. The that God, people the God are trying particle? to come in contact with. Well, yeah, that would be the true meaning to it. They they sort of wish that one away, but it's yeah. it's 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 really um, uh, hiding underneath exactly what they're looking at. At least from a knowledge perspective, and the ability to provide knowledge to create immortal immortality in the physical universe again. That will be part of the beast system. So, out of that comes the absolute science that they call uh, a mixture of philosophy guiding all of these sciences that is the abs and it's actually literally called the absolute. It is the development of the knowledge to the level of this. And they say that they have this that could destroy the earth. And by implication is, is that's what they're trying to achieve again today. And it's what they had just before the flood. Wow. Okay. Um, let's see. So yeah, you definitely covered, origin of the mystery schools and and 
out of that uh, perver- perversion of um, these sciences and by becoming idolaters and worshiping other things. So uh, is, is Nimrod the considered like the first Freemason? And then if so, what was the predecessor of um, secret society's antediluvian? Well, Nimrod would be considered the first Masonic individual after the flood, him and Hermes. Yeah. And, and he's the first grand master and the first adept, and he's training people within those mysteries as is Hermes after the flood. And so the, fir- the beginnings of this so- these societies go back to before the flood, and they are part of that whole governmental hierarchy. That's part of the elite. Okay. And within those, I mean, basically, secret societies work hand in hand with polytheism. Yeah. They're a tactical arm of the strategy or the, in the vision and the religion of the sciences. And so were, were they even in antediluvian times, were they crafting out a, a a bloodline of of mixture with nephilim dna and then trying to use that as a way to uh increase their their power and and to control this knowledge yeah so you have this royal bloodline at the beginning before the creation of the giants that would be sort of raised to almost demigod-like status in the mythos of the Cain line. But in the time of Lamech, in the time of Jared of the Seth line, um, they're going to produce, the Canaanites are, Canaanites are going to produce human females to marry in Genesis 6, the sons of God, the angels, the watchers. And they're going to produce the, the Nephilim giants. And then Canaanites are also going to intermarry with the giants as well. So you're going to have two marriages and one presumes that you're going to have people of the Seth line intermarrying with giants as well. And maybe some of them later intermarried with the fallen angels as well, because by the time of Noah, the whole line is corrupt except for Noah, his wife and his three sons and and three wives. So uh, one presumes that was a domino effect that happened. And we understand in polytheist cultures, they had typically 10 demigod dynastic kings in every civilization. So it seems to be an antediluvian standard, whether it's actually 10 generations, we don't know, but they're all producing a bloodline. And the secret societies, they believe uh, that not only that to be an adept of those secret societies, you have to be of the bloodlines, but you have to have be able to track your genealogies back to these original Nephilim before the flood and to the Raphaim after the flood. Now, whether or not somebody believes giants survived the flood or not, that's not really sort of the, the, the important point here. It's what they believe and what they do with that belief system that's important. So where they fit both before the flood and after the flood, is is how pure those genealogies are back to an original Nephilim or Raphaim patriarch and a godfather of the celestial mafia, the fallen angels. 
And so they'll take their genealogies back. And then they have another process, and this could be more of a post-diluvian thing because of a fertility issue that starts to take place because Nephilim multiplied in great numbers before the flood. So something happens after the flood with these giants that they have some sort of fertility issue that we can get into a little bit later. But for the premise of the conversation is that um, <clears throat> there's a development somewhere along the lines, and I think it's after the flood where they have something called scioning. And the word scion, S-C-I-O-N, is like the first son of a dynastic bloodline. Wow. And to have they cut and they coin it into scioning and scion, and that means of grafting in blood. So scion can also mean to graft, as in the plant uh, grafting of a plant. And that's grafting in of other pure bloodlines. Okay. to create new powerful dynasties and or just increase what they call ennobling their bloodlines. And that enhances. So if you have the purity and then you have pure graphs that are going in, you're going to be at a higher level in that status both before the flood, but more likely after the flood. But I can't say that that tradition didn't go on before the flood. I can only account for how important it is to the bloodlines after the flood. And these become the ruling class. These are the royales, both before and after the flood. And royale has two words compounded into it as you take that etymology back. And Roy, as we understand it today, um, would be uh, Old French for king, R-O-I. And it goes back to, to, to Gallus and words like that in Latin and to rule as it goes back to Indo-Aryan, which is thought to be sort of the gibberish language of the, of the giants and supplies a lot of etymology into the modern languages. Um, and Al is a transliteration of a word that's trans, translated into English as El. And El means a god or an angel. And so Baal, for example, would show that. That would be Lord God, as the Masons would call him. And so that's why I'm also a little dubious of translating from Hebrew into English, Jehovah mm. uh, Elohim. And they don't translate that as that. They translate that as Lord God. Right. And that is a bit... That's so I, you know, I have that's my, my flag sort of get up on that sort of translation. It's not that Adonai doesn't mean my Lord, but it's not used in that application. Okay. And I get they're maybe not be wanting to use the two Hebrew words for God, but why it has to be one that um, would be part so important to the Masonic uh, religious worship of Baal, who's the divine leader of the council of gods after the flood who takes over from El, the parent god, before the flood. And it's Baal and Ashtaroth that are going to be not with each other, but with Canaanite daughters for sure with Baal and maybe with women or with men with Ashtaroth a little bit later on. They're going to create in the Ugaritic text the Rapiu or the Rapium, which is the Semitic root word of RPM and the Semitic root for the Hebrew word Rapha, Raphaim, and the word giant. And so 
you have that recreation and they provide after the flood ruling through the council of the gods as recorded in Psalms 82 and over the 70 nations both before and after the flood as Deuteronomy 32 talks about the divine right to rule to the royals which means kings of God. Ah, uh, yes. Um, or Rex Dea says some people understand it as. Right. Um, so real quick on the Rephaim, because one of the um, definitions of that is is dead ones, right? Or something to do with that. Did they yeah. have an ability of, of self-healing? And, and if that has nothing to do with the dead ones, uh, where did, where did that, um, definition come from then? Yeah. So in the, uh, Hebrew lexicon, there's three main words and then there's names that Kings accepted as Rapha that root out of these three words. The root word is 7495, meaning Rapha, which means to heal medicine, a physician, words like that. And then 7496, which follows immediately after and is rooted in 7495, means a demon spirit, an evil spirit, a disembodied spirit, a shade, words like that. And then 7497 is the word for a giant, a tribe of giants, as in Raphaim, as in the, the male plural. Just as you get the Raphaim tribe that shows up twice in the Bible, Genesis 14 in the War of Giants, and then in the mighty ten nations occupying the land from the Euphrates to the Nile. No coincidence there that that would have been the original size of Eden um, to Abraham in Genesis 15. And Rapha shows up uh, 25 times in the Old Testament but only twice as translated as Raphaim for those specific giants. So it's used more than Nephilim in the Old Testament, which is only used three times. And so all of those words show the whole meaning to these giants. So if we now look at a polytheist source that uh, runs, I think, very well, in a parallel polytheist lens kind of way, as you look through it, is, is the creation of the Raphaim from Baal and the Canaanite daughters uh, produces the Raphaim, who are the kings of Ugarit, and the kings and the giants of the tribe of Datanu, as they're called in uh, the uh, Ugaritic text and the answer to the assembly of Baal after the flood. And so these are royal bloodline dynastic kings as it presents their genealogies of Ugarit. And kings from other places where they were given their divine right to rule come back to Mount Hermon for regular assemblies of the Datanu, or Datanu as some people might uh, pronounce it. Um, and that these have an ability to heal themselves and not only heal themselves but others so this divine gift that they would have received from the post-diluvian godfathers um, passed on some ability to to heal themselves so you can imagine if you lose a finger it would grow back or a hand and that the only way to kill a giant was to take his head to do it so suddenly and do so much disrepair 
that it would, they would not be able to heal themselves. So you get in the Bible accounts of taking the heads and you get accounts all throughout polytheist cultures that they, they, they just did it because they didn't want them to come back. And then they would become a disembodied spirit, right? Right. And so in the Ugaritic text, when a giant king died, they would do a funeral procession to take them into the other world through, through a portal uh, to make sure they got safely there. But if they lost their heads, that was the worst death that they could have. And in the Egyptian execration text, that was the most humilifying thing that you could do to a royale. And so seemingly that wouldn't perhaps not permit them to use their knowledge or didn't have time to learn their knowledge or whatever the implications was that they would not be able to make their way to their heaven, which is Sheol or Hades, where their gods rule from. So they would have to roam the earth as either disembodied spirits, as what shows up in the New Testament, as evil spirits, unclean spirits, and demons or devils as their translated in the King James Version Bible, and that should be for devil translated as daemon, which is the Greek root word for demon, not diablos, which is used for Satan. So it's it should be, should be I think should have been translated as, as a demon spirit. And that's the disembodied spirits of, of the giants. And another thought is, is that they would have, or they would be sent right to the abyss. Now, biblically, this makes sense because in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 14, you have these disembodied spirits that are locked in the sides of the abyss in cells. And in Ezekiel 32, they're actually talking to Pharaoh, who's another bloodline from the abyss, and they're the terrible ones. Which is which is U- Ug, that Ug, our king uh, did horrible things on earth and were killed. Yeah. Which is Ug, the terrible one. Yugaret is where you get that word from. Ug, King Og, and Arit is terrible, and the I am would be, you know, the the plural on it. So that's the city of Ug before he moves to Mount Hermon after the Raphaim are basically wiped out in Mount Hermon and the War of Giants in, uh, in Genesis 14, and why we see King Og ruling over the Amorites in Mount Hermon at the time of the Exodus. Right, so everything starts to sort of fit in through looking at, at at those accounts, and so we get these accountings that provide us another verification why there was this healing power that was associated to them. So now, if you roll that forward down the bloodlines, and with the Merovingian kings or the Hyksos kings, and they're all depicted in a similar way in this bloodline because they have this dark hair and these uh, big bushy black beards. They had healing powers. It's the Fisher King um, so, uh, philosophy that, that goes with some of the uh, priest kings of, of polytheism. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. Um all right, a two-part question. Uh, was Babel a type of Mount Hermon? And then in the flood, was God trying to wipe out the uh, the spurious knowledge uh, seven sciences? And did Nimrod revive it? I think you touched a little bit on that about these uh, these pillars of knowledge that were preserved. But but yes, maybe start with Babel as a type of Mount Hermon and then 
than the knowledge part of it. So towers, ziggurats, and pyramids were considered the same structure in the ancient world designed for the same things. And so a pyramid would be um, a representation of a mountain. And in before the flood, there would be considered to be seven sacred mountains around the world. Uh, they all may be based on one, or there could be other ones that were established as the population increased both before and after the flood. And so Mount Napur, which is the equivalent to Mount Hermon, and Napur is located in the Sumerian tradition, is said to be the same as Mount Hermon. In fact, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Cedar Forest, that Gilgamesh and Enkidu travel to to kill this chimera giant king Ambada, who's called the Terrible One and commissioned to do terrible things to um, humankind, uh, lives in the Cedar Forest in Mount Hermon. And so they're thought to be the same place, the same, at least maybe there's a home mountain and branch mountains, which is sort of common, for example, in polytheism. And an example of that would be uh, the Palatine Hill in the Seven Hills of Rome. And Palatine was the home of the Sibylline prophecies in the area where original Rome was settled around. And then it has a branch, uh, it had a branch, Sibylline prophecy, religious uh, hill or mountain a little bit further out. That was called Vaticanus Hill that the Vatican was later built on. And so that's, so that's a common sort of thing that you see in, in, in polytheism. And I was, I'm not saying Catholicism is polytheism. I'm just saying the ancient site was part of the Sibylline oracular religious site there. Um, and then people can speculate why Christians would build on polytheist sites. That's a whole different, that's a whole different discussion. So, yeah, so you have this mountain that's being recreated in Sumer, in Shinar, as we would understand that in the Bible, that is also known as Eridu in the Sumerian epics. And it's the exact same story of Babel. And so it's it's not Mount Hermon, but I think it's to emulate Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is, if you think about it, is the home to the Pan Temple and the gateway of the gods into their uh, place of heaven, right? Um, which is probably where the Ugaritic kings took their dead-bodied kings who had died in the funerary process there as part of a portal access, or maybe to Gilgal Raphaim, which is thought to have, you know, a hundred different um, domains there, which is a, another word for portal. And so they're recreating an image of the holy mountain. And they usually built these places on sites that had in their belief system energy lines or ley, ley lines and some sort of natural grid of the earth and that they were a technology. So just as you would have a portal that would be uh, available at Mount Hermon, it's also thought that the technology being built at Babylon had a power to create wormholes or portals. And what's interesting is that if he's an archetype antichrist figure, 
he would want to go into heaven like Antichrist will do to try and attack God and the war in heaven that happens in the end time. And he might also want to go into uh, Sheol and Hades where the abyss pit prison is located to release his ancestors or what he believes his ancestors might be or adopted ancestors and his gods. So this technology is sort of wrapped in the Akkadian version with the meaning of Babel. And it doesn't mean confusion of languages as we get that out of Hebrew. It means as in Babalu, which is another transliteration of El that we talked about earlier. Uh, so that would be El. So that'd be a god or an angel. And Bab as in a portal or a gateway. So it's a, like a stargate or a gateway of the gods. Um, and so he was likely using that sort of technology. So that's where you see that technology, how powerful it was perhaps coming to a head and with what what Nimrod was really trying to do because everybody knows you can't build bricks in a pyramid uh, and build it into heaven and somehow get there, right? You just can't do that. And you can't get there or into the heaven of where he believes his gods are to, to free them. It has to be a technology, and that has to come from some knowledge from somewhere, somehow, for, for that to happen. And so, yeah, so it's it's a replication, I think, in those cases of the holy mountains. Yeah, and yeah, the and then question? the other, the next question was about, was in the flood, <clears throat> was God also trying to deal with um, the illicit knowledge, how that how that knowledge had been perverted to try to wipe that out. But you were saying that one of the legends is that it was preserved in these pillars. Yeah. Yeah. So God's only trying to provide enough time to have all the names in the book of life that were written there from before creation to have an opportunity. God is Alpha Omega as Jesus is. So he knows the beginning and the end. He knows all the things that are going to happen. And so he, but he's greater than uh, time and he's greater than the free choice that he provides both angels and to humans. And so in that use of the free choice, he understands the angels are going to rebel. He understands they're going to take revenge against Adam as being the resolution to the angelic rebellion and to try and make sure that they're wiped from the face of the earth, just as the giant nations after the flood try to do that to Israel, to be remembered no more, so that humankind can't reach their destiny to be resurrected uh, like angels in the future time and be the inheritors of eternity. And they, he knows that they're going to create the giants and that they're going to all, all but destroy the world. And then they're going to create this knowledge. He doesn't stop the knowledge or any of that from happening. What he provides is a restart and time. So he knows there's going to be this knowledge that is going to cross the flood. He knows the giants are going to show up after the flood. It's all about providing and his intercessions are only about ensuring that humankind can reach their destiny and that there's enough time to permit that up to play out. So that's why there's an ordained time because he already knows what that time is to that for the end time. And he's just making sure that has an opportunity to play out. And all of the evils that happen on this world isn't him. He's knowing that this is going to happen, but the only way to create beings for eternity 
is people have to choose God, angels have to choose God, and they have to be loyal to God. So those are the ones that are yeah. reserved for eternity. Wow, I, I had a picture in my head as you were kind of laying that out uh, as far as God knowing the beginning from the end and giving time for humanity and for what he or has ordained to take place. And I imagined a football field and, you know, the flood comes and it's like God, you know, Satan's got the ball and he's about to run and here comes God and he sacks him back 20 yards for a loss. And it's like, no, if, if things had been allowed to progress and then even after the flood with Nimrod, you know, nothing will be able to, humanity will be able to do anything they want. Um, nothing will be impossible for them. He, he sets them back 20 yards and like, nope, okay, this is going to play out according to how I want it to play out. So, exactly, and you can comment on that quick, but, um, and then I wanted to ask you if, uh, if Freemasonry, if their goal is to recreate this golden age, but, but go ahead how you want. Yeah. And I was just sort of underlying is, is that. The angels have a lot of knowledge, but they don't have all the knowledge, only the knowledge that God permits. So they don't know when the end time is. And then the other thing, you know, when, when and when Jesus is specifically going to return, even Jesus doesn't know that. Um, only the Father knows that. And so there's another point that demonstrates that um, the angels don't know anything and he knows all of the choices that they're going to do. And they all know the choices humankind is going to do. So you have like Israel who gets the Holy Covenant. All they have to do is follow the covenant, but they don't. Right. And so things are going to be played out, not because um, Israel has been destroyed from the face of the earth. They're going to be played out according to what God said in the Holy Covenant through the curses of the covenant, not the blessings of the covenant, which it could have been, could have been a lot easier, but he knows he has to allow free choice. So there's always another thing that's put in to allow things to be played out. And then when you get to the time of Jesus, I mean, you get, they're trying to kill Jesus all the way through, not have him born um, when he's a child. Um, and finally, you know, they're going to, they're going to crucify him. And in the meantime, when he starts off in his commission, Satan is even offering him to rule all the worlds that he controls at that point in time, even though he knows somehow, some way, Jesus is destined to run uh, the world, but he wants to do it earlier, right? So, and again, they're always trying to do things in a different time frame than God permits, but what they didn't know was, was the resurrection because that was hidden from them as the book of first Corinthians talks about. And it even says the principles, the archons, um, if had they known about the, the resurrection, they would have ensured he wasn't crucified, but yet they were determined to do that to prevent what they thought was the ability to save humankind. So there's limited knowledge um, that they have, but they do have a lot of knowledge and this is going to play out through free choice. Um, but there are some intercessions that permits this whole thing to play out so everybody can have an opportunity to be evaluated the same way. And so the, the new Atlantis, the new age, is something that is a dream of the secret societies. 
So that's why it's so important not only to understand the days of Noah so we can better understand the end time, but we also need to understand the days of Noah and everything else that happened and how the polytheists viewed the antediluvian age. So they viewed the antediluvian age as this golden age, as they like to call it. Zeptepi, the first time when the, the gods walked, walked amongst humans and interacted with humans and provided all of this knowledge and raised this civilization to a level that I think we're just catching up to today. And so the most mythical, famous uh, civilization of the antediluvian epoch was Atlantis. Home of black magic, Enochian mysticism. And in that mythos, you have Poseidon, who is a god of Olympus, Mount Olympus. Um, and I think he actually inherits Iapetus' title because he's to me he's more of a offspring god, like Baal is inherits El as he's the offspring god. But let's just go with what the what the uh, uh, the legend says is going to mate with um, a human female. In this case, Clito. In Iapetus's scenario, it was climbing, so similar but different. Um, but the, in the in the Atlantis uh, myth, ten demigod kings were created. So you have Nephilim kings that are being created, and they raise this civilization to be the greatest civilization of the world that is determined to have one rule over the whole earth. So somewhere in this mythology is an Antichrist-type figure that is doing what all Antichrist figures try and do from, you know, uh, Hitler in World War II to Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps uh, uh, people like Alexander, but all the people that would be sort of the Antichrist figure for the beast kingdoms because these are the royales. They're doing what Nimrod tried to do. They're doing what Satan tried to do, and they would have done what an antediluvian figure would have done, and we kind of can juxtapose this understanding on that through the book of Ecclesiastics, where it says, nothing is new under the sun. What was will be again. And you have we have this repeating cycle that happens throughout our history. So that sort of presupposes it would have happened before the flood as part of one of the as to why you would have had an apocalypse by water versus the apocalypse by fire in the end time that's coming and so they were trying to take over the whole world militarily as plato's timaeus and Critias details and uh, they're destroyed by the flood and by the gods um, because they've lost their way uh, but it's the same story as Genesis 6 before the flood, created in the same way, destroyed in the same way. And we actually get in different um, passages in the Bible, more than a flood destruction, you get catastrophes that just can't have happened unless it was in the flood and things that are more than a flood. So, um I won't go in, into in that into that rabbit trail, but I do cover it off in my book. And if people want those passages, they they can get a hold of me, and I'll send them to you. Um, so this is again exact same story, and that this great civilization is, is what the secret societies who um, venerate Atlantis want to rebuild in that sort of imagery. So 
you see that in some of their literature, for example, like King Arthur is this round table, just as you have the ring lords of Nippur, and he is uh, trying to recreate when he takes out the sword from the stone with what they would say would be their version of Excalibur as being Michael's sword, and he's going to rebuild um, the uh, new Atlantis. And he has this wizard polytheist religion with Merlin, and that's the fairy... Uh, the fairy Duatha, Tuatha Danan kings that are on there, and he's like uh, an allegory of Osiris, post living god, and Guinevere is Isis, and he's son of Uther Pendragon, um, which is dragon is the patriarchal bloodline, and Guinevere is your archetypical fairy queen, which is the matriarchal bloodline. So they got they have this sort of mythos that they take down through history. And it's made famous again with a Rosicrucian named Francis Bacon, who writes The New Atlantis, which has this end time scenario and this universal religion that works with harmony with the seven sciences, which, of course, is that religion of Enoch, Enochian mysticism, as I like to call it, that, that crossed the flood that they want to set up for the end time. So they see uh, a millennial rule as being their millennium, just as Hitler tried to offer a thousand-year reign in the Third Reich as an Antichrist-type figure uh, with a polytheist religion, and that you have... Um, Francis Bacon saying, we want a world that is going to be run this way in a similar kind of manner. And of course, Rosicrucians don't believe in God. They believe in the pantheon of gods and they want to bring them back. So the new age is just the modern reflection of new Atlantis. And of course, they're offering this new age in this millennial rule where you'll be like gods. And again, everything leading up to that will be a promise to make you like gods, just as what was offered to Eden to bring humankind down. Wow. Right from the very beginning, the very first temptation of knowledge. That's incredible. You know, uh, in in going back through your book again, uh, you referenced uh, Ignatius Donnelly, um, his book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. And uh, I picked that up on Kindle here. I, ha- I haven't uh, <laughs> barely started it yet. But since we're since we're kind of on the topic, um, because when I talked to Ryan uh, Peterson uh, a while back um, on our episode, uh, he was talking about similarities of Atlantis to Eden. And also some tie-ins to Gilgal Raphaim. So do you have any comments on them being one and the same, or is it kind of a a synonym uh, theology from, you know, Sumerian or, or other texts? Well, you get a Eden type of story in the Sumerian texts. Um, but again, it has this sort of polytheism slant. And so it would be... Um, a counterfeit of the Eden one, and it would be in a place different than in Eden. So, um, and, you know, after Adam and Eve are ostracized from Eden, there are two cherubim that are put at the gates to guard it. Nobody's getting into it. And then the flood is going to destroy the Eden garden, right? Right. 
So that doesn't mean they're not operating outside the garden um, with their, their civilizations and things like that. But understand they're going to try and counterfeit everything, just as you have an Antichrist as a counterfeit Messiah, right? That's just what they do. And so um, when you look at uh, Atlantis as being a new Eden, that's what they're trying to create. So if you look at New Age doctrine, they look at this New Age as being a new Eden. It's their allegory for the first time. And it's this allegory from a polytheist slant that was an age of plenty. So just as Eden was an age of plenty, so was the antediluvian world where, you know, crops grew easily, there wasn't disease, you lived to be great ages, all those sorts of things. And that's what they're offering in the new Eden in their new millennium. So that's where you get that sort of um, allegorical, you know, connotation to it. And that um, this this Eden that is, 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 being talked about as as the new Atlantis, again, it will be a time of a golden age. It will be a time of plenty going forward. And then there was another comparative that you had in there. I think it was you said he was Pedersen was talking about Atlantis and somewhere Gilgal, else. Gilgal Raphaim. Yeah. Oh, Gilgal Raphaim. Gil- okay. So yeah, you could make an argument that um, Gilgal Raphaim, which has a dating of 3000 to 3500, 3500 BC at the foot of Mount Hermon uh, might be just outside of the Eden gates because that's the mountain that the angels swore their oath before their flood of Harem Anathema. And that Gilgal Raphaim, meaning the, the wheel of the giants or the wheel of the Raphaim um, or the wheel of the spirits, disembodied spirits. Again, you have all of that sort of wrapped in there. It has, you know, like 100 portals that we had talked about. So I think that, uh, you know, certainly after the flood, it was a, it was a land of plenty. And so... Uh, it had great crops and things like that. And that's part of what was being reported in the, in, in the scouts report. And that was sort of outside the land of Israel as well. Um, and in the land of giants um, for the, for the most part, but, uh, but is it, you know, could it be, um, could it be Eden? It could be the old Eden, because Eden could have included that. And then after, you know, the ostracization of Adam and Eve, you have the guards, the gates on the garden, and maybe the angels, they, you know, they were able to go to Mount Hermon to renew that oath, to, to do the oath, and then went down and, and create. Or maybe the garden's located a little bit separate, but it just seems that it... From the Genesis description, it runs from the Nile to the Euphrates. So I think it's just an allegory overlay more than anything. Um, but I was just sort of saying if I wanted to make a sort of factual case as to how that could be, but then you start to kind of get into some, some conundrums. Um, and it seems to me that that was probably a holy mountain um, before it was perverted as well with, with the oath. You've been listening to the Days of Noah podcast. Thanks again for tuning in this week. 
As always, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us a five-star review to help grow the channel. And guys, if you enjoy our work, if you enjoy these episodes and you're getting value out of them, tell a few family and friends about it. Make sure to share it with them. Post it on your social media. And if you'd like to further support us beyond that, click the support link at the bottom of the description and choose a support level. Even that 99 cents per month subscription goes a long way towards making sure we can keep the quality of these episodes high. We can continue to do research uh, into these topics, into bringing on great guests. It helps make sure that the equipment that we use to record these podcasts is up and running each week. It really does help to uh, just fuel this effort towards talking about these important things as the days of Noah approach. So thanks again for each and every one of you out there. We appreciate you guys and we pray for you guys. So thanks so much. See you next week. God bless.